have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Ezra chapter 9. We're wrapping up a four-part series this morning where we've been looking at some of the revivals that have taken place in the Bible. And as we've looked at these revivals, we've discovered some steps that we need to take if we're going to experience revival in our lives personally and if we're going to experience revival in our church corporately. Before we get into this, though, let me remind you of what revival is. First, revival is not a series of meetings that we have at church one or two times a year. That's not a revival. And second, revival is not when lost people are brought into the family of God. That's not revival. Revival is a move of God among God's people that results in a spiritual awakening in the world. Revival is a move of God among God's people that results in a spiritual awakening in the world. The Bible says it this way, if my people who were called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Revival is first of all a move of God. You can't bring revival. I can't bring revival. We corporately can't bring revival. Only God can bring revival. Revival is a sovereign work of God. But we can put ourselves in a position where revival can take place. Second, revival is among God's people. It's a work of God among God's people. For you to experience revival, you have to have already been brought from death into life. You have to have already been born again. God's spirit has to be living in you. You see, revival is a fresh move of God. Revival is a fresh encounter with God. Revival results in a renewed love for God and a renewed desire to serve God. Third. When revival comes to God's people, it blesses the world. It results in a spiritual awakening. And the reason is, when God's people are revived, we will have a renewed desire to share his love and the hope we have with other people. And as we share that love with other people, as we share the hope that we have with other people, that will result in a spiritual awakening in the world. But let me remind you. For us to experience revival, there are some steps that we must take. And and that's what we've been discovering over the last four weeks. We've already discovered five. And today I want to talk to you about the sixth one. But let's review the first five. The first step to experiencing revival is we humbly cry out to God for help. Until we humbly cry out to God for help, we will never experience revival. Until we come to the point in our lives where we are desperate and we recognize there is nothing on our own that we can do to solve the situation that we have, we will never experience revival. And I want you to know that I believe this is the primary reason That we are not experiencing revival today. Because we're comfortable. We're complacent where we are. We say we're not. We say we don't like the world as it is. But the reality is we are unwilling to humble ourselves before God and seek his face. We're unwilling to come to that point in our life where we're so desperate where we realize he is our only hope. 
And so until we come to that point, we will never experience revival. Now, step two is we remove the idols from our lives. Every time a revival has taken place in human history, the idols from that time of history has been removed. But here's the problem. Most of us don't think that we have any idols in our life. We think that idols are a relic of of past history or, or idols are something that are found in underdeveloped or undeveloped countries in the world. But what we need to understand is an idol is anything that takes our eyes off of God, draws our heart away from God, or takes first place in our life. And something doesn't necessarily need to be bad to be an idol. You see, a good thing can become an idol when it becomes the main thing in your life. Let me say that again. Good things, when they become the main things, have become idols in our life. And that's the problem with many of us. We have these good things in our life that have been moved to the main thing in our life. And all of a sudden, this thing has become an idol more important than God is in our life. Anything. Anything in creation that we put our hope in, that we give our love to, other than our creator, has become an idol. Now here's step three. God's house has to become a priority in our life. I believe that we are living in a culture in America today where many of us who call ourselves Christians have this belief that we can love God, we can be committed to God, and yet not love his church and be committed to his church. But I want you to listen. That is a lie. Nowhere in God's word do you ever find a place where we can love God and not love his church. We can't love Jesus and not love his bride. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And understand, you will never experience revival personally until the church corporately is a priority in your life. God never intended for our faith to be an individual thing. Though we come to faith individually, our faith is intended to be a corporate thing. We live out our faith. We flesh out our faith in a body, in a family of believers. Now, step four is that God's word must become the authority in our life. Not an authority, but the authority in our life. God's word must be that truth by which we judge all things. God's word must determine what is truth in our life. Let me say that again. Until God's word becomes the ultimate authority by which we judge all things, whether it is true or not, we will never experience revival. And last week we discovered that if God's word is the authority in our life, we will read it and we will obey it. Here's the crazy thing. There's a statistic today that says that that the overwhelming majority of people who say that they believe the Bible is God's word, it is true, don't regularly read the Bible. Did you get that? The people who say they believe the Bible is true don't regularly read it. And, And if you were honest today, many of you would say, well, that applies to me. I believe the Bible is true But I don't read it on a daily basis. I don't read it on a regular basis. I don't pour into it. If you believe the Bible is true 
and it's going to be the authority in your life, you have to read it. But then you not only have to read it, you have to do what it says. You have to obey it. It's not enough to read the Bible if you don't obey it. So God's Word must become the authority in your life. And then step five, we remember God's past work in our life. We remember where it all began, what it was like to fall in love with Jesus for the very first time. To experience His love and His mercy and His forgiveness in our life for the very first time. You say, well, Rocky, I don't really know what that was like. Well, then you haven't been saved. You could say, well, you're, you're being ridiculous because I believe the truths of God's Word. Well, you can believe the truths of God's Word and not be a Christian. You can believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, and not be a Christian. When you become a Christian, you're born again. The Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. He makes all things new. Understand, becoming a Christian isn't just an intellectual decision. There are things that you must believe, intellectual truths that you must hold on to. But becoming a Christian is a spiritual decision. And it's a spiritual decision that changes every aspect of your life. And so if you're a Christian, you can look back at the point where Jesus became real to you. He came into your life. He saved you. Your sins were forgiven. And revival is when you were desiring a fresh encounter with God. Where you're looking back to that first love experience and you're saying, God, do it again. I, I want to experience your power and I want to experience your love. And I want to experience your majesty in the way that I experienced it when I first came to know you. And so we have that fresh encounter. We have that fresh love. But today, I want us to talk about the final step that we're going to be looking at in this series and I believe, apart from step one, where we humble ourselves before God, this part may be the most important. Because if we do the other things, but we don't do this thing, we've missed out on what we need to do to put ourselves in a position where God can bless us and bring revival to us. So step, step six is this. We must commit to purity before God. You see, a revival from God will result in purity before God. If we experience a revival that comes from God, it will result in purity of life from or before God. Now, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we have this story of a great move of God. Ezra was a priest. Nehemiah was a political leader. And together, God used them. To bring about this revival. But let me give you a little bit of background if I may. The story begins with the people of God. The, uh, the people of Israel in exile in Babylon. They had disobeyed God. They had rebelled against God time after time after time. And God warned them time after time after time. God showed them grace and mercy time after time. And finally God said enough is enough. I'm sending a foreign power in and they're going to take you into exile and you are going to be in exile for a period of time and that's what happened the city of Jerusalem was torn down the temple was destroyed all but the poorest of the poor were taken into exile but then after a period of time God moved 
God touched the heart of a pagan king, a king named Cyrus. He was the king of Persia. And God touched Cyrus's heart and laid on Cyrus's heart this desire to build a temple to the almighty God in Jerusalem. And then he issued a decree declaring that all of the exiles, the Jews, could go back to Jerusalem. And so many of the exiles, the Jews, went back to Jerusalem and they began to rebuild their homes and they began to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. But as they rebuilt their homes and rebuilt their temple, the walls were still torn down and and the people were still living defeated lives and, and tragically something happened. As they had been living in this foreign land, they had, they had began to take on some of those foreign customs. And as they came back into the promised land, the land of Israel, they brought these foreign customs back with them. And they began to make decisions that were displeasing to God. Because God had called his people to be a set-apart people. And that takes us to the scripture that I want us to focus on. Listen to what it says beginning in Ezra chapter 9 verse 1. It says, when these things had been done, the Jewish leaders came to me, that's Ezra, and said, many of the people of Israel and even some of the priests and Levites have not kept themselves separate from the other people living in the land. Now, if you underline in your Bible, if you've got an actual Bible, you're not looking on your phone, I'd encourage you to underline that verse. They have not kept themselves separate. That's a key theme we find throughout Scripture, that we are called to live separate lives. They have taken up the detestable practices of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Termites, and everybody else. <laughs> I made up the Termites, by the way, if you're, I don't see that one there, okay. For the men of Israel have married women from these people. And they've taken them as wives for their sons. So the holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. Worse yet, the leaders and officials have, have led the way in this outrage. When I heard this, I tore my cloak and my shirt. I pulled hair from my head and my beard. I sat down utterly shocked. Then all who trembled at the words of God. In other words, all of those who believed the word of God. Of Israel came and they sat with me because of this outrage committed by the returned exiles. And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of the evening sacrifice. At the time of the sacrifice, I stood up from where I had sat in the morning with my clothes torn. I fell to my knees. I lifted up my hands to the Lord my God. And then in verse 6, it says, I prayed. Then as you read verses 1 and 2, you discover that the Jewish people were intermarrying with the pagan people who now inhabited the land. And you need to understand, this isn't a race thing. This isn't an ethnicity thing. This is a religious thing. You see, God had called the nation of Israel to be a unique people. They had a different faith. From the people in the world. They had different values. Than anybody else in the world. And because of that. God knew. That if the people of God. Began to intermarry with the people of the world. They would compromise their faith. And they would compromise their values. And that's what happened. Over and over and over again. We see that happening. Have you heard of Balaam the prophet. Who the donkey talked to. Remember him? 
Balak wanted Balaam to put a curse on Israel, but he couldn't. So you know what he did? He got the Israelites to compromise their beliefs and intermarry with the Moabite women. And because of that, the people fell into sin. And we see this over and over again, and this is what is happening here. You see, throughout Scripture, God calls his people to be a separate, distinct, holy people. In Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44, or verse 44, it says, You must consecrate yourself and be holy because I am holy. You must be holy because I am holy. That word holy means different, distinct. We're called to a different behavior. We're called to a different lifestyle. Because the God we serve is a different God than all the gods that this world serves. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. We see this in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Later on in that same chapter, it says, Come out from among the unbelievers and separate yourself from them, says the Lord God. Now understand, that's not telling us that we're supposed to go live in the mountains somewhere in some commune. That's not saying that. It's not saying that we shouldn't have interaction with people in the world because how can you be salt and light without interacting with the world? But what it is saying is when it comes to close, intimate relationships, we have to separate ourselves from the world because if we don't, we will become just like the world. And that's what happened. The people of God had intermarried. They had taken up the faith and the values of the people in the world. Here comes Ezra, the priest of God. He comes to Jerusalem. He sees this. He hears about it. And he's overwhelmed with grief. He rips his robe. He rips his shirt. He pulls hair from his hair or hair from his head and hair from his beard. And you may think, wow, that, that guy's crazy. He's having some kind of big attack here. Well, this was a common practice in the Middle East for showing your grief and your remorse. And then it says, it goes on to say that Ezra was overwhelmed. It says in verse 6, I am utterly ashamed. Listen to what it says. It says, I prayed, oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush uh, or I blush to lift up my face to you. In other words, I'm, I'm even embarrassed to look at you, God. For our sins are piled higher than our heads. Our guilt has reached to the heavens from the days of our ancestors until now we've been steeped in sin in other words, this isn't a new thing. We, we've been doing this forever, it seems like. That is why we and our kings and our priests have been at the mercy of the pagan kings of the land. We've been killed and captured and robbed and disgraced just as we are today. Ezra was saying the reason that we are experiencing all of the hardships we've experienced. The reason that it seems like we are continually being overtaken by these pagan lands. The reason we have been taken into exile. The reason that we're not experiencing the good hand of God upon our life. Is because of the sins we've committed in the past. And we are still committing these same sins. And so Ezra falls on his knees before God. And he begins to confess the sins of the people. And in chapter 10 verse 1 we read this. While Ezra prayed and made this confession, weeping and lying face down on the ground in front of the temple of God, a very large crowd of people from Israel, men, women, and children, gathered and wept bitterly with him. Did you get that? 
I mean, you don't have to be a grown man. You don't have to be a grown woman to be overcome with, with grief over where we are as a people of God. Men and women and even children were gathered there weeping before God because of the sins of the people. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, a descendant of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God, for we have married these pagan women of the land. But in spite of this, there is hope for Israel. Let us now make a covenant with our God to divorce our pagan wives, to send them away with their children. We will follow the advice given to you and by the others who respect the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law of our God. And you need to understand. As we read this, this sounds foreign to us. This sounds strange. But God had clearly commanded in his word that his people were to be separate. He had expressly forbidden them from intermarrying with people of the world. And now they had. And it brought not only shame and disgrace, it brought immorality and idolatry into the people of God. And so the people of God decided the only thing that we can do to make this right is to divorce these pagan wives and send them on their way. Now, what we would say today is two wrongs don't make a right. Now, how can this be right? And the New Testament talks about if you become a believer and you are married to a non-believer, you don't leave that non-believer. If they're willing to stay with you, you stay with them and you seek to influence them for the good of the kingdom and for Christ. But in this day, this was such a big deal that the only way they could remove the sin is to absolutely separate themselves from it. Someone once said, it's a whole lot easier to get into sin than it is to get out of sin. That's true, isn't it? The Bible says there's pleasure in sin. I mean, it's so easy to fall into sin. I mean, you don't have to try hard. I mean, it's just, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. But then it will grab you and it will hold on to you and it will put you in chains and it will destroy you. And you will discover that getting out of that sin and breaking free from that sin is a whole lot more difficult than it was to get into that sin. And so that's why God calls us to separate ourselves. To be a separate people. To be a pure people. Now listen. This is important. Until we make a commitment to purity. As the church of Christ. I don't think we ever have a chance. Of experiencing revival. We have to deal with all sin in our life to experience revival. And then you may say, Rocky, what is, what is purity? Let me give you my definition. Purity is freedom from that which contaminates and pollutes. So anything that's going to contaminate you or pollute you spiritually, you stay away from. You say, Rocky, does that mean that there are certain things I shouldn't watch on TV? Well, I would say so. Is there certain music that I shouldn't listen to? I would say so. Are there certain places I shouldn't go? I would say so. I mean, but if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been born again, the Spirit of God is living in you. And I don't need to sit back and give you a map 
of every single right and wrong you need to do. The Spirit of God will be the map for you in your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Anything that pollutes you or contaminates you spiritually, you are willing to get it out of your life. And the second, uh, purity is freedom from sin and that which separates us from God. And so there are things that contaminate us. It may not necessarily be sin, but they're contaminating. This is kind of like I've said before. If, you know, I make a batch of brownies and I bring them to church. And I put the brownies out and say, here, have some brownies. But I want you to know before you have this brownies, and I mean, I've made hundreds of brownies. I said, I want you to know there's one little tiny piece of dog poop in this big batch of brownies. It's not a big piece. It's just a little piece mixed in there. So go at it. You know, have these brownies. I mean, you got to be real hungry to eat one of those brownies. And I'd go on to say, you got to be real stupid to eat one of those brownies. You say, man, I'm not going to do that because I may be fortunate enough not to get any little tiny piece of dog poop. But I don't want to risk it because I don't want to chance contaminating myself. And so you see, there are some things that you can do that may not necessarily be sin, but they will contaminate you. And it's not worth it if you want to pursue Christ with all of your heart. You've got to be willing to come out from among those things and be separate from the world. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. John said in 1 John 3, all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. And here's the problem today. We're living in a world where it is so difficult to tell what's pure and impure, isn't it? I mean, we're living in a society where, I mean, 20 years ago, things that almost everybody in this room would have said, this is wrong, this is sin. There are some of you in this room right now that would say, well, no, that's not that bad. And the reason is, is because our society has accepted it. And so we live in a culture today that is calling wrong right and right wrong. And Solomon talked about that. Solomon said in Proverbs, 15, or, um, Proverbs 30, he said, There are people who think they are pure when they are as filthy as they can be. Did you get that? There are people that think they're pure. When the reality is they're as filthy as can be. And that's the world that we're living in today. And you need to understand that when we are, are contaminated by the impurity of this world, it is going to keep us from experiencing the power of God. So how? How can we become pure? Let me give you three things. First of all, we've got to ask God to show us all known sin in our life. You're never going to come be pure before God until you're willing to lay yourself open before God and say, God, show me anything and everything in my life that is displeasing to you, that is dishonoring to you, and I'm willing to get rid of it. David said it this way in Psalm 139. He said, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there is any wicked way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. That word search means to penetrate, it means to cut deep, it means to peel away the layers. What David is saying there is, God, I want you to look deep within me. I want you to get to the heart of my heart. I want you to look deep within my mind, and I want you to show me everything that is displeasing to me. Then he said, try me, test me. That word has two meanings. It means to investigate, but it also means to remove impurities. 
And so what you're saying is, God, I want you to search me deep within. I want you to show everything to me that is displeasing to you. And then I want you to remove it from me. And then he says, I want you to see me. Gaze deep within me. Don't let any area of my life go without you seeing it and showing me the things that are displeasing to you. And then he said, lead me in the way everlasting. Guide me. Ask God to show you all known sin in your life. Are you willing to do that? I mean, there are some of you here today that you're Christ followers. You can look back to the point where Jesus changed your life. But there is sin in your life. Unconfessed, undealt with sin. You know it. You don't even need to ask God to search you. You know it. And you're not willing to turn loose of it. You need to ask God to show you every known sin. Second, you need to confess that sin to God and maybe to others. David said this. He said, finally, I confess my sins to you. I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. My guilt is gone. We quit covering up our sin. We quit making excuses for our sin. We confess it to God. Stop making excuses. Stop saying, you don't know my situation. You don't know my circumstances. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. Confess it to God. Call it what it is. And then finally, stop sinning. Stop sinning. Acts 3 says, so turn to God, give up your sins, and you will be forgiven. It's not enough to confess your sins. You've got to stop sinning. You see, purity means not only that we recognize the impurity in our life. Purity means we're getting rid of the impurity in our life. And until that happens, we're not experiencing revival. God is going to use a pure church to change the world. Well, some of you are probably inevitably saying right now, well, Rocky, we're all sinners and we're all in need of God's grace. Yes, we are. But if you're born again, you have a desire to live a holy, righteous life. And you have a desire to remove all impurity from your life. Whether it's things that come into your life through your eyes or through your ears. Whether it's things that come out of your mouth. Whatever the impurity is, you have a desire to get rid of it. An old child of God. If ever there was a time that our nation needs an awakening, it's today. And our only hope is those of us who are in this room. We're the hope of America, the church. We're the hope. Not the politicians in Washington. Not the investors on Wall Street. Not the educators in the classroom. We are the hope. But there is no hope. Till we make the commitment to purity. So I want you to bow your head. Close your eyes. And first of all, with your head bowed, with your eyes closed... If you're here and you've been coming or this is your very first time and 
you recognize that you don't have a relationship with God. There's nothing to revive, but God's Spirit right now is touching your heart, and you recognize that you need to give your heart and life to Jesus. Then, then I want to encourage you right here, right now, wherever you are, to humble yourself before God. Acknowledge your sin. Place your faith in Jesus. Let him save you. You can pray this prayer right now. Dear God, I come to you this morning acknowledging that I'm a sinner. I've disobeyed you. I've lived life my way. I'm sorry. I don't want to do it anymore. Jesus, I believe you came to this earth. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the grave so I could be forgiven and so I could be changed. Come into my life and save me, change me, and make me new. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the desire and the power to live for you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Amen. Now, with your head still bowed, your eyes still closed. If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you right now to begin, even this moment, searching your life coming clean before God ask God to bring revival to you so that he can use you in this world because if we don't stand up we have no hope take a moment and talk to God Father God, create in us a clean heart. Renew our minds and give us the right spirit so that you can use us. Lord, we desperately long for your presence. We desperately need your power. God, we recognize that we are helpless. We are hopeless apart from you move among us work within us and make us into the people you want us to be I pray Amen